Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. And it came to pass that a family that was in trouble gathered together. The moment had come the parents determined to lay down the ultimatum. They had truly been in trouble. The kids, teenagers, early 20s, young adults were out of control. They would yell at mom and swear at dad. They would come in late, never indicating when they would be home. They would come in high or drunk. It was a devastating situation. The parents hadn't known what to do and furthermore had not had the ability, the moral fiber to stand up and lay down the law. But tonight was the night. They called them into the kitchen. Mom and dad were sitting at the kitchen table. Kids came in. Mom and dad said, sit down. They said, we don't want to. So they stood there, and mom and dad said, enough. This has to stop. And the kids laughed. They said, we mean it. Tonight is the night. This is the time we're drawing the final boundary. Either you comply, our rules aren't major, or you leave. Well, where would we go? One of them snidely asked. I don't know, Dad said. We don't have a place to live. Well, get a job. Can't find a job. Really don't want a job. Well, that's the problem. And it went downhill from there. By the time the conversation ended with the kids storming out, Mom and Dad had not only laid down the law, but now had the courage to stand behind it. That's a tough situation. But if you will do some adjustments, you will understand the Old Testament prophet Micah even better. If you will look at that scene of that family gathered together, and if you will change it from 21st century America to 8th century B.C. Israel and Judah, and if you will change it from a family scenario to a spiritual scene, and if you will change it from mom and dad to God and his people, you have just stepped into the conversation between God and the people of Israel and Judah through the prophet Micah. It's time. Payday is coming. And God is still trying to capture their hearts and draw them back into that covenant relationship. The people aren't really having much of it. They're claiming that God's expectations are far too high. They'll never be able to satisfy them. And so God, through Micah, is saying, here's what I expect. Now, just a moment ago, Andrew and Alex read so well the passage out of the book of Micah in the Old Testament. We're going to read it one more time in this series, Micah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. Listen carefully once more. Maybe this can lodge itself in our hearts and souls. Micah 6, verse 1. Listen to what the Lord says. 
Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Now here comes the key element in the charge. It's a question. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. And then God goes on to tell what he's done for them. I brought you up out of Egypt, redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And now the people are responding, cynically, angrily. We can't ever satisfy you is the essence of what they're saying. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And finally, Micah steps in, speaking on behalf of God, and says, He's shown all you people what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? In other words, what are God's expectations? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what we've been calling 6-8 religion. Act justly, love mercy, and today we focus on that third phrase, walk humbly with your God. So what does that mean? What does that look like? How might we know if we're in that kind of a relationship with God that is characterized by humility and companionship? Well, if you were to peruse the pages of this book, you would probably find a range of different ways to answer that question. But if we zero in here on Micah, I think that there are three ways that emerge out of the book as a whole and even out of the wording of this passage that help us understand what it means to walk humbly with God. First of all, people who walk humbly with God can say, I don't know. Just like the child this morning. Did you catch that? In Pastor Dan's children's story, what is humble? And the child said, I don't know. In fact, listen to these words taken from the late James Montgomery Boyce. He was a theologian, an author, a pastor, reflecting on the words of Micah, these words that we're reading right now. Here's what Boyce wrote. This final requirement is to walk humbly with God. Have you known Christians who are anything but humble in the way they go about business? I'm sure you have. Such people think they have all the answers, and they rightly bring the world's scorn upon themselves. We do not have all the answers. At best, we are part of the solution, and we may even be part of the problem. How can we who are sinners be anything but humble? How can we not desire above all things to walk humbly with God. Now, make no mistake about it. There are affirmations that we can make based on our faith in the God of this book. 
It's much like what Moses said back in Deuteronomy 29 when he's talking to the people. And as he comes to the end of that chapter, he speaks words we ought to remember. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things he has revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Translated, there are things that only God knows, but there are things that he has given us to know. It sounds suspiciously like Isaiah's words, speaking for God when he says, God says, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so is my mind, my thought, my plan high above yours. Even here in Micah, just two chapters before, as God is talking with Micah, dialoguing about the condition of his people, And telling him, I'm going to use these other nations to punish my people. He says, those other nations, they're going to stand up and be proud and haughty and arrogant about it because they think they know it all. But he says, Micah 4.12, they don't know the thoughts or the plans of God. All of that together to say, people who are walking humbly with God can say, I don't know. In fact, do you remember that kid back in school? That kid who couldn't say that? That kid who knew it all? May have been elementary school, more likely high school, maybe college. That kid who had always heard it first, always knew it first, always knew the secrets. Nobody could say anything to that kid without that kid saying, Oh, I knew that. Oh, I heard that. I'd already thought of that. Did you like hanging around that kid? Then let's not be a whole church full of that kid. Just like Montgomery Boyce says, sometimes people are angry because we are haughty enough to say we know it all. People who walk humbly with God recognize the limits of our knowledge. Daddy, how did Satan find evil in his heart when everything around him was perfect? I don't know. Mommy, when is Jesus going to come again? I don't know. Soon, I hope, but I don't know. Friend, you're a Christian. You go to church. Tell me, why did my child die when the child across the street in the same car lived? I don't know. There are limits to our knowledge. Two Stevens. Stephen... Dubner and Stephen Levitt write about this kind of thing. They are two economists. I want you to listen to what they have to say, and I want you to interact a little bit with their thoughts and see if you don't agree with their conclusion. So this is what they write. Imagine you are asked to listen to a simple story and then answer a few questions about it. Here, they say, is the story. So listen to the story. I'm going to ask their questions. I'm not going to ask you to answer publicly, but have the answer in your mind. Fair enough? So here's the story. A little girl named Mary goes to the beach with her mother and brother. They drive in a red car. At the beach, they swim, eat some ice cream, play in the sand, and have sandwiches for lunch. Okay, that's the story. Now there are four questions. Number one, what color was the car? 
If you said red, you're right. Question number two, did they have fish and chips for lunch? No, they had sandwiches for lunch. Question number three, did they listen to music in the car? Answer is not available based on what we've been given. Question number four, did they drink lemonade with lunch? No information available. Now back to the words of Dubner and Levitt. How'd you do, they ask. Let's compare your answers to those of a bunch of kindergartners who were given this quiz by academic researchers. Nearly all the children got the first two questions right, red and no. But the children did much worse with questions three and four. Why? Those questions were unanswerable. There wasn't enough information provided in the story. And yet, a whopping 76% of the children answered these questions either yes or no. Kids who try to bluff their way through a simple quiz like this are on the right track for careers in business and politics. where almost no adult ever admits to not knowing something. It has long been said, they write, that the three hardest words in the English language to say are, I love you. We heartily disagree. For most people, it is much harder to say, I don't know. That's a shame, for until you can admit what you don't yet know, it is virtually impossible to know, to learn what you need to know. I'm almost ready to make a deal with you. Not quite, but I'm close. We're entering into a political season. It's going to be hotly contested and heatedly debated. We're going to come to all kinds of divisions in every question imaginable being asked of every politician involved. The deal I'm almost prepared to make with you is this. If a politician is asked an important question and answers it by saying, I don't know, I'll vote for that politician. <laughs> That's where I almost have arrived at. As I read Scripture, as I read Micah, it is clear that there were realities they simply didn't know. So when it comes to this act, this discipline, this journey of walking humbly with God, remember, those people can say, I don't know. There's a second reality growing out of that phrase, walk humbly with God, Micah 6, 8, 6, 8 religion. People who walk humbly with God can say, God comes first. God comes first. In fact, listen to the words of Old Testament scholar Daniel Simonson as he's writing once again about this very passage. Here's what Simonson writes. The key word in this verse is walk. We are to walk with God. Careful to what? To put God first. And to live in conformity with God's will, our life pilgrimage is likened to a walk with God as our constant companion. That's what we speak of here at LLUC as the discipleship journey. He finishes by saying these key verses from Micah are about lifestyle, one's total outlook on life, and one's ethical values. Bottom line, if we are going to walk with God in humility, God comes first. There was another teacher who would come much later, 
who would sit on a mountainside speaking to his followers and their friends, and he would say to them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things. I'll see that you get what you need. Seek first. God comes first. Now, by saying that, we intuitively recognize that that means that I come second or fourth or tenth or last. And with those words, we engage in the most devious and heated battle that any human being will ever have to fight, and that's the battle against self, against me first. It's a devious battle, this call to humility, to putting God first. It's a devious battle because just when you think you have it won, you've lost it. Just when you say, oh, I finally achieved humility, it's gone. Just like that. Reminds me of the words of Swedish theologian Kirster Stendhal, New Testament scholar, who wrote about that very issue this way. Stendhal writes, There's a well-known story about a man who wanted to be humble. This man, says the story, was very happy when he managed to be humble. But then he was very sorry that he was happy that he was humble. And then he was very happy that he was sorry, that he was happy when he was humble. You get the story. It's the most devious battle there is because when you fight that battle with self with that sense, I come first, I need to take care of me, I'm taking care of number one. And then you say, okay, I need humility. When you think you've achieved it, you've lost it. It was Dr. Harry Ironside great preacher from Moody Bible Church in Chicago, pastored there from 1929 to 1948, well-known preacher of his day and time and even since. He came to a point in his ministry when he felt like he had lost his humility, like there was too much self involved in what he was doing. And so he finally went to a friend who was actually an elder at his congregation and said, I'm struggling with this. What would you recommend me to do? Here's what the friend said. I recommend that you make a sandwich board sign that you can hang over your shoulders. One half of it hanging out here, the other half of it hanging here. And on that board sign, on both sides, write the plan of salvation from Scripture. Put it on. Go to downtown Chicago and spend the entire day walking around in the business district of downtown Chicago. Well, already Ironside didn't like the sound of where this was going. And yet he thought about it, pondered it, and finally decided, I think my friend has a point. And so he made the sandwich board sign. He, he wrote out the plan of salvation in Scripture, drove to downtown Chicago, put it on, and spent the entire day walking around with this on. Honestly, it was a pretty humiliating experience for somebody with his level of achievement. He finally got home that evening, and Ironside himself would later say, I took that sign off, and as I took it off and tossed it on the floor there, I, th I caught myself thinking, he said, I thought to myself, there's not another person in Chicago that would do that. <laughs> I mean, isn't that it? 
right when you think, okay, I've achieved it, it's gone. It's a good thing of me to say God comes first. Isn't that good of me? And suddenly you realize God's not first. You are. It's not only a devious battle. It is also a battle most of us would rather not engage. C.S. Lewis had a friend and an acquaintance by the name of Sheldon Van Auken. Van Auken would go on to write a book entitled A Severe Mercy. But as he was coming to faith in Christ, he was corresponding with Lewis back and forth. At one point, Van Auken wrote a letter to Lewis in which he said, he said, the most repugnant, and that's the word he used, I find the most repugnant reality in Christian faith to be humility. The bended knee. Van Auken says, that's repugnant to me. And if we're honest with ourselves, we probably each have those moments when we would do anything not to choose the way of humility. But for those who walk humbly with God, they're able to say from the heart, God comes first. So the question becomes, how does one become more humble? How does one achieve that, this devious battle that we don't even want to fight? Well, I think Phillips Brooks, another preacher from yesteryear, had it exactly right when he spoke an answer to that question with these words. He says, the true way to be humble is not to stoop until you're smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. In other words, if you want to be humble, don't try to do so just by acting and putting yourself down and there's no worm worse than me and all of that. Just stand up to the full height of who you are next to Jesus it has a rather humbling effect. It's kind of like if you say, you know, I'm, I, I hate to say this, but I'm a really good basketball player, and then someone says to you, really? Why don't you play, do a little one-on-one with LeBron James? Let's see how it works out for you. What if you say, well, you know, I... Sports like that are not my thing. But I'm an incredibly good chess player. And somebody else says, well, sit down here across the chess table from Gary Kasparov. Just play a little match with him. I've spent years refining cello. I'm confident I can play any piece. Have you met Yo-Yo Ma? Maybe you all could do something together. It has a humbling effect. You're not putting yourself down. You're just facing reality. So if you find yourself struggling with the humility required to say, God comes first, maybe go to a garden called Gethsemane. Watch Jesus. Stagger down the Via Dolorosa beside him. Gaze at the old rugged cross. 
it has a cleansing effect on our pride. So Micah, speaking for God, says, here's six, eight religion. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. So you're asking what it means to walk humbly with God? People who walk humbly with God can say, I don't know. People who walk humbly with God can say, God comes first. People who walk humbly with God can say, your will be done. Your will be done. Once again, this time from Gary Smith, Old Testament scholar, again, writing on this passage says, the final requirement, walk humbly with God, is related to a person's humble walk with God. The Hebrew root describes a life that is not proud, but is attentive, careful, prudent to follow God's will. This suggests that Micah is warning against carelessly or presumptuously doing things your own way instead of being attentive to do God's will. Such a walk with God is humble in that it puts a person's will in a secondary position and gives prudent attention to doing his will. In some sense, this requirement is the broadest of the three, for if one does this, one will certainly treat others justly and faithfully, maintain all the covenant responsibilities. God's covenant relationship lays a claim on every human relationship, calls every act into loyal submission to the covenant agreement, and desires that every attitude of selfishness be prudently submitted to God's will. This high calling requires discipline and full commitment on the part of anyone who wants to be part of God's holy nation. Wow. We read that one verse, Micah 6, 8, and think it's simple, and we're right. But don't confuse simple with easy. In fact, I want to reread two sentences from that quote. First one I want to reread is this one. The Hebrew root describes a life walk that is not proud, but is attentive, careful, and prudent to follow God's will. And the second one, such a walk with God is humble in that it puts a person's will in a secondary position and gives prudent attention to doing God's will. Do you know that I have come to believe that the hardest sincere prayer to pray is four words long. Your will be done. You want to know how hard that prayer is to pray? Then go back again to Gethsemane. To one cast upon the cold, clammy earth, clinging as though for life itself, as blood drops ooze from his forehead, trying to utter the words, Father, not my will, but yours. The person who walks humbly with God can pray, your will be done.
And it was a father, a father who was going on a business trip. He was going to be long, gone for an extended period of time, a long time. His farm that included a ranch portion and a farming portion was, was at a critical place because he was doing a lot of construction, remodeling. There was much to be done. So he called in his two sons. They were young adults, good kids. He said, I need your help, and I need you to be very careful how you do this. He laid out before them on the table a map of the property, and therein was contained his instruction for all that was to be done. Here's what I want. Here's what I'm working on. Here's my dream. Please carry it out. They said, we will. And they were good kids. And the dad left. And those two young men set to work, set to work carefully and thoughtfully, working to accomplish everything exactly as their father had laid it out. The weeks passed. The work got done. Dad's return was looming, and they were down to the last task, the building of a storage shed. As they looked at the map, as they looked at the directions, the instructions their father had left, they noticed that their father had situated the storage shed on the west side of the barn. That made no sense to them. I mean, they're on the west side. The afternoon sun is particularly intense at certain times of the year. It's going to be especially hot there. And besides that, the ranch portion is over here. The cattle, the horses, we're going to have to be going back and forth. Why would he put it on the west side? Why didn't he put it on the east side? They actually spent some hours talking about it, sorting it through, trying to figure out, did Dad just make a mistake? Maybe he didn't think about it clearly. They sorted it out and finally decided, you know, he must not have thought this through carefully. And they built it on the east side. That's what made sense. And Dad returned. They were eager to show him what they had done. They took him around the entire piece of land, property that they had, showed him one project after another completed. And dad responded, oh, that's really good. You did a great job. I love how that turned out over and over again. And they finally came to the last task, the stewardship. And they begin to explain, dad, you know, uh, here's what we thought, here's what we saw, here's what we wondered, here's what we wrestled with, here's what we decided. And they told him. And their dad was thoughtful, taking in what they had said. Here's why we did it, Dad. Finally, he spoke and he said, boys, you've done a really good job. I really appreciate all the work you've put in, all the thought, all the effort and labor. I'm so pleased with how so much of it has turned out. I do notice, he said, however, that you did everything according to your own will. I said, Dad, what, what are you talking about? That's just not true. We did everything exactly as you said it. Well, I mean, this last one, the, the storage shed, everything else, we did just as you outlined it. He said, no, I understand, I understand. I appreciate all you've done. But I do notice you did everything according to your own will. Dad, come on, that's just not true. I mean, and they went into it again. 
And yet again, he said, I appreciate it. Good job. But you did everything according to your own will. And he said, Dad, finally, come on. He said, let me tell you what I mean. All this work, all these plans that I laid out, you did everything just as I requested, as long as it made sense to you. But as soon as one facet didn't make sense to you, you did what you wanted. What if everything else hadn't made sense to you? The essence is, you did a nice job with everything, but you did it all according to your own will. I want to tell you the truth. I wrestled a good part of this week with whether or not to tell that story because I don't like that story. I really don't. Because I want to do certain things the way they make sense to me. Now let's be honest. There are some facets of God's will we don't know. Remember the first point? I don't know. God does expect us to use our mind, our wisdom, counsel. But there are other facets of God's will that are clear. And that's where the test comes. Am I humbly walking with God? Because if I am, I can say, your will be done. That's 6-8 religion. That's Micah and his people. That's those parents and those kids in the kitchen with the parents laying down the boundaries. It's a whole different approach to religion than the people of Micah's day were interested in. They wanted all kind of ceremony and ritual. And God responds by saying, no, 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 no. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. People who walk humbly with God can say, I don't know. Can say, God comes first. Can say, your will be done. It's a deep, demanding approach to religion. It has to do with every aspect of our life. But that's 6-8 religion. So I guess my question for you is very simple. When it comes to 6-8 religion, what will it take for you to become a convert?